you are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have David Lowe, author of No More Champagne, here to talk to us about Winston Churchill, his early life, and his aristocratic parents. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You've written a few books about Winston Churchill. How did you get started on that? Well, I've written, yes, I've written two books. I mean, I, I only became uh, or came back to history pretty late on in life, having read history at university. And then I had a career in the financial world and started my own uh, business up there, which I ran for 20 or 30 years. But my interest in Churchill, I suppose, goes back to the fact that I was 14 or 15 when he died, 14, I think. And I had a brilliant history teacher who was trying to teach us to think for ourselves. And so when there was all this adulation in the press, he said, don't believe all this. He said, you know, Churchill was just an old Victorian windbag. (laughs) And when I went home, because this was a boarding school, when I went home at the end of that... um, term and repeated that phrase, the old Victorian windbag, to my grandmother, as though it was my own view of him, she was just scandalized. You know, she was outraged. And it made quite an impression on me. And she started to give me all sorts of the biography, or, or the official biography of Churchill, as it came out, volume by volume. And it came out very quickly after his death, because, you know, it was obvious he was old. And attached to it were the texts of original letters and memos he'd written. Um, They were called the documents volumes. And I found myself getting sucked into those. That was my first real brush with primary history, and I, I, I loved it. And so whenever anything came out about Churchill, I mean, you know, in my career, I mean, I just kept on reading history, I'm afraid. I loved it at university. And as my wife's despair, I hardly ever read fiction. But... As I read these books that kept coming out about Churchill, it was clear to me that you know, he'd had various financial problems, but nobody really, it was clear that the historians didn't really understand them. They, didn't, they, they, they never weaved a coherent tale, and I thought there was probably something missing. And so as I came into my sort of 60s and felt like hanging out my boots in the money world, and I, I was thinking, what, what shall I do? And I just thought there was a missing story there, and and I decided to have a look in the archives, which are very full, and see if I if there was enough material to put it together. And so I went off up to Cambridge, where his papers are based, and I decided to take one test year, 1921, when he inherited some money, and just to see if there was enough documents there. And I was astonished. Uh, it was all there, all his bank statements, tax returns, all his bills from everybody, all his letters of advice from solicitors, all, all his you know, investment advisors, correspondence, it was all there. It, it wasn't neatly filed, it was all over the place, but I reckoned that I could put it together and, and tell a story. Not, I didn't want it to be a dry sort of academic financial story, but I'd learned, you know, my business was what we call um, either private banking or wealth management. And if you're going to do it properly, you need to get people to talk about themselves and about their priorities in life. And, and from that, you can start to give them useful advice about what to do with money. 
And I thought in this case, I could sort of reverse engineer it. If I could see what he did with money, I could sort of flip it back to, to see what that told us about him as a person. And so I've really just tried to give a different, a slight, you know, a different view of him, judged by what he, <laughs> the mess he made of his money. So that's how it came about. That's actually very interesting because I started reading your book last week when, well, we're, we're still having the controversy about the whole legacy of Churchill and the statue and whatnot. And mm. I was very fascinated with all the tiny details in your book that I had never heard of. For example, you talk about how Churchill was the grandson of the seventh Duke of Marlborough. Yes. And he was born in the 1870s. So what kind of life does that aristocracy in England uh, uh, have at that point? I guess it's a general question, but... Yes. Well, it's a very rarefied life. I mean, at that time, there were still three or four hundred families in Britain who owned most of the land and ran most of the politics. Because up until... I mean, it was beginning to change, but up until that time, money had really flowed from the land there had been very little by way of industry. The Industrial Revolution was just getting going. And money had flowed from agriculture. And land ownership was very concentrated in the hands of the aristocracy, who, until the Reform Acts of the 19th century, had controlled really both houses of parliament, the House of Lords, where many of them sat, but also they controlled many seats in the House of Commons through family patronage. and. Uh, the dukes were at the top of this system of aristocracy. There were probably a couple of dozen dukes, and they were outside the royal family. They were the most they they enjoyed the most elevated social status. With that went some obligation to maintain a certain lifestyle. Normally, uh, a rather grand house in the country that took a lot of people to run because you know there was no running water or heating, everything had to be carried around the place. And, and it usually entailed a, a London residence as well. And they would come up to London, particularly for the summer months, the summer season, Parliament sitting, and then they would go back at weekends to their country homes and they would invite each other around. You know, they, they saw each other at work and play. The Churchill's, uh, Winston Churchill's ancestor, the first Duke, had been created a duke, in the early 18th century, so about six, seven generations before Winston Churchill was born. So he was quite a newcomer as a duke. He won his dukedom by being the commander, not only of the British army, but of all the allied armies, the Dutch and some of the German principalities that took on France in the lengthy war of Spanish succession at the beginning of the 18th century. And he had commanded these armies to a string of victories. They were useful victories because they were all, they were all definitely victories and he got the various sort of victor spoils, but they weren't quite decisive enough to win the war. So it dragged on and on and he earned more and more. And he was created to Duke. He was given an allowance for life and then that was converted into perpetuity for his family. And he was given land and the funds to build this great palace at uh, Blenheim. But, you know, he was, never, he was never really wealthy enough. Despite all the paintings he was given and all the porcelain and the gems, you know, these were, these were wonderful objects, but they didn't bring in any money. And his 
his agricultural estate never really matched up to the front rank of uh, ducal estates. His wife, the Duchess, had a powerful business brain. She survived him by 22 years, and she did build up the estate further after his death, and she built it to a maximum of about 100,000 acres. But even at that level, it was less than half some of the longest established dukedoms. So the, the Churchills, Dukes of Marlborough, were always under financial pressure, really. Um, and it got worse when the original Duchess died because she left the portion of the estate that she had built up. She didn't like her grandson, who was due to take over as the Duke. She didn't like him because he wasn't obedient to her. Uh, she, she had an idea of who he should marry, and he had a different idea. And also, he insisted on gambling, and he wouldn't give up his gambling habit, which she thought was reprehensible. So she said to him, you know, if you don't mend your ways, I'm going to give my half of the estate, the bit that I've built up, to your brother, uh, the, the Spencer family, and uh, you, you will lose half the revenue. And, and he sort of, he didn't believe her. But when she died, she was as good as her word. And that's when the family fortune, which wasn't anyway of sort of front ducal rank, got split in half. And so the Churchill family really struggled to maintain the sort of lifestyle that was required of dukes. They had to cut their staff. I remember one of the dukes, I think it was about the fourth or fifth duke, Duke had the indignity of having to cut his staff at Blenheim down to just 78 people. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, as, as time went on and, and uh, we had an enlargement of the voting franchise in 1832, and there was pressure for cheaper food as a result of that. And we, in the middle of the 1840s, the Parliament repealed the corn laws, as they were called. They, it was a protective barrier which kept agricultural prices high in Britain. And when they repealed them, which caused a, a huge fuss, rather like our Brexit debate today, the, it so happened that in, in, in your country, the great prairie farms were organizing themselves. The railways were starting to come in. Uh, ships were starting to be propelled by steam. And so these great farms in uh, North America were able to export grain to Britain at a price which completely undercut home-produced grains. And there was, um, you know, there was a real exodus from the countryside. Something like 100,000 people lost their jobs in the countryside in the 1850s and 1860s here in Britain. They went to join the growing industrial enterprises in the cities. But for the, for the aristocrats who owned the land, this was very serious news. You know, their agricultural rents went down, or if they farmed it directly themselves, their, their earnings went down. And so by the time Winston Churchill was born, the Churchill family, the Dukes of Marlborough, were selling off land from, their, from you know, around the central Blenheim and they were also selling rare books, they were selling gems, they were selling porcelain. They, they, they were really having to sell the family silver. And so you talk about how Lord Randolph married an American lady named Jeannie. How did that match come about? 
Well, it, it it was a love match. I mean, it it wasn't you know very. It was one of the forerunners of the matches between the English aristocracy and American heiresses, but this was a genuine love match, and it's um, it's quite a story, really. The Jenny Jerome was the daughter of a hugely attractive character called Leonard Jerome. There's a book about him called The Fabulous Leonard Jerome. And he was one of the early Wall Street pioneers, a man of great sort of charm and of a great extrovert, huge risk taker, several traits which I think he passed on to his grandson. He came from a family, they, they, they were immigrants from Britain at the beginning of the 18th century. So roughly when John Churchill was being ennobled or made a duke, you know, at the same time, the Jeromes were actually sailing from Britain to America. They, they, uh, land, they first settled in Connecticut, and then they moved up the East Coast to New York State. And Leonard's father, Isaac, was a doctor. He had, I think it was nine children, five of them boys. They all went to Princeton. Actually, Leonard was the youngest, and he, he didn't last the course there because the money ran out. Um, but uh, he had a, a you know, successful enough education to join his uncle's um, chambers. His uncle was a, a lawyer. And then he bought, with one of his brothers, he bought a newspaper, local newspaper. He tripled its circulation, sold it, bought a telegraph company. I think he turned that round too. Um, and he moved up to, into New York itself. And with, he was by then married to a woman called Clara, quite reserved, very different from him, maybe Indian blood. And um, with some of her family money, they set up, um, he, he and, and another brother, he set up a, basically a Wall Street trading business allied to newspaper ownership. And he would, I mean, his technique, uh, you know, we'd call it insider trading now, was that they would load themselves up with some shares, invite some editors of newspapers around and talk up the shares. Uh, various people have duly bought the shares <laughs> and then they'd sell out at you know, an appropriate time. So he... Pumping I mean, and dumping. <laughs> yeah, it didn't all go to plan, of course. It was a, it was a life of ups and downs. But, but, you know, he liked that. He was a man of energy and... Um, and daring, but his wife couldn't really, she didn't enjoy the lifestyle much. And she, they, they had all had a brief period in Europe, in, in the city called Trieste, which is on the Mediterranean and much used by the European aristocracy at the time during the summer. And she really took a fancy to the sort of aristocratic court way of life and dressing and all that. And so when she got fed up with her husband's various affairs, she took her three daughters, Jenny was the middle one, with his blessing and, and actually with a, a sum of money he'd settled on her, he took, she took them off to Paris. And um, Jenny and her sisters went to a lycée in Paris. You know, they were educated in French. They became bilingual. Uh, they, they were very popular at court because they were American. There was a lot of novelty value to that. And this was the days of the sort of self-styled court of Napoleon III. And they, they loved Paris, um, but Napoleon III's time came to an end. He, he, he uh, lost the support of his population. He tried to rescue himself by declaring 
war on uh, Bismarck and the Germans, but actually very quickly the Germans overran them. And the, the Jerome daughters and their mother had to take the last train out and they, they, they ended up in London. And they didn't like London. London, you know, it wasn't as glamorous as Paris and it was damp and foggy and polluted. And so come the summer, they used to go down to escape to the Isle of Wight, which is an island off, off the bottom of the, the southern coast of Britain. Um, and there's lots of sailing around that island. And in the summer, the aristocracy used to go there and sail. And, and Leonard knew that, and he thought his wife and daughters would enjoy it. And so off they went for three years, I think. And on, in the third year, when Jenny was 19, there was a ball given in a British naval ship that was sort of anchored off the island um, for this sailing regatta. And one of the guests at the sailing regatta was the young crown prince, the Tsarevich of Russia, who was related to the British royal family. And so um, the Prince of Wales gave a ball for the Tsarevich. And he invited Lord Randolph, which is a very natural thing to do. You know, he was the son of a duke. And I guess they were a bit short of women or something because Mrs. Jerome and, her, and two of her three daughters, who were over age, ended up with invitations. And so on, on, on this afternoon of August 1873, on, on a British, old-fashioned British naval ship bobbing up and down between um, the Isle of Wight and the British mainland, the, these two, Lord, Lord Randolph and Jenny Jerome, so a lot dies across the <laughs> wardroom floor, and they had one dance, and then uh, and then apparently they just sat and talked. And I think you know he was mesmerised by this woman who could speak about so much. She was very well read. She 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 was bilingual. Um, she knew all sorts of people in Paris, and she'd had this very cosmopolitan upbringing. Schools in New York and Paris lived in Trieste, and this was such a contrast to young British women he was used to seeing because young British women at the time were educated entirely within the confines of the home in which they lived. You know, there were no girls' schools. They just were brought up by a governess, and they were sort of taught to appreciate music and knit, and, and sort of, you know, they, they, they had a very limited outlook on life. So he, I think he was genuinely attracted not just to her you know, the way she looked, but the way she spoke and, and her vivaciousness, which stayed with her all her life. Um, and within 72 hours, he proposed to her and she accepted. And, you know, this was a, a most unusual match and most unusual courtship at the time. But there it was. For me, the most interesting part is the prenuptial agreement where Lord Randolph says, I'm quite decided that Jenny will have to manage the money because I'm quite sure that she will keep everything straight for she's clever like all Americans and has a sacred, should I say, almost insane of her of buying anything she cannot pay for. Yes. So <laughs> that, that part's very interesting to me. Yeah, well, how wrong can you be? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think those whole negotiations for the prenup, as we would call it today, they called it a marriage settlement then, are, are fascinating because the, the two quite different cultures you know, came into collision with each other. So 
I mean, both families, the whole point of a marriage settlement was that the two families decided, you know, in what proportions they would contribute to set up this young couple financially. And also they decided, in, you know, how the money would be divided between future children, etc. So it was a very important document. At the time, you know, these, these marriage settlements were much more important than, than wills in determining where wealth ended up. And in Britain, I, mean, we, I think we'd only just had the change of law which allowed married women uh, to own any property at all. You know, normally it became automatically, it had become automatically part of the husband's property, anything brought in to a marriage settlement. But then, you know, the American system was very different and, and, and had been deliberately set up by the founding fathers to be different. They wanted a less patriarchal society than the one they'd left behind in Britain. And so, you know, insofar as there were any laws governing these things in America at the time, um, sons and daughters were treated alike. And so Leonard Jerome expected the money he produced for this marriage settlement to produce an, an allowance for his daughter and the money would go to her. But the British system expected it all to go to the husband. And, you know, this, this led to an impasse in the negotiations for several months, which um, was only broken a week before the wedding when he said, okay, well, I'll compromise. You know, half of it must go to her and half can go to Lord Randolph. But he, he said to the Duke, he said, by the way, I think your system's a rotten system. You know, I think it's just storing up trouble. So that was the first of quite a few <laughs> clashes of culture. Interesting, I think. And the, the other thing, I mean, I, I don't do, deal with this so much in my first book, No More Champagne, but when I more recently produced a volume of the letters that, that, that Winston Churchill exchanged with his mother for the, well, over a period of 40 years, actually. And uh, you, know, the, the, you see that the whole tradition of parenthood in America is very different from the, the, the way you bring up your children is very different in America from the way that you bring up children in Victorian Britain at the time. And I think she brought up Winston to be, I mean, she veered a bit between the two systems, but actually in the end, she brought him up to be much more direct um, and to speak up for himself much more than British children were generally taught in those days. You know, they were, they were supposed to be seen but not heard, and, and everything was sort of approached in a rather roundabout way and with self-deprecating manner. And, and I mean, Churchill never had that. He, he, he had much more what people in Britain then saw as the brashness of, of, of a young American. And Lord Randolph also became a Tory MP sometime in his career, right? Yes. Yes, uh, he, just before he was married, he became the MP for Woodstock, which was the town right next to Blenheim, and, and that seat was more or less in his father's gift. He later had to change because it was one of the so-called rotten boroughs, you know, where, where an aristocrat virtually controlled the seat. And, and when those were abolished a, f a few years later, he had to go out and find a real seat, as it were, and can have a real contest. But, but that was no problem, because by then he made his mark in British politics, and uh, he had a, a very short-lived, rather meteoric career as a politician. And it, this happened after, but he was, like, really worried about money, so he 
had a deal with the Rothschild in Africa. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, both he and his wife had really lived beyond their means from the day they were married. I mean, they had a, the, the, the marriage settlement, the prenup, produced them enough money. Um, it, it produced an income of £3,000 a year. So we're talking that would be through, that would be about half a million dollars a year today. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they had a few, they had a staff of about seven or eight from the time they were married. They were only 20 or 21, but they had, you know, they had butler, valet, ladies' maid, housekeeper, cook, assistance <laughs> and he gam- he kept on gambling she kept on buying expensive clothes and so really f- from within about a year of their marriage they were running up debts and mounting debts and he was a politician and politicians weren't paid unless they were in office then uh, when they were ministers they did get paid and he was only a minister for two brief sessions of about six months each and his second spell in office was in 1886, by which time Winston Churchill was about 12. Uh, and the, the, the debts were mounting, and you know he didn't want to get a job in, in the city of London because that was rather beneath a duke's son at the time. Ah. Um, and he, but he did know he was good friends with Nathaniel Rothschild, who became Lord Rothschild, the head of the then quite young but very successful banking firm. And they rem- they'd been friends at school and they remained friends all, all the while. And Natty Rothschild, knowing what a spot his friend was in, said, came up with a great suggestion. He said, why don't you lead an expedition to search for gold in a particular part of Southern Africa, you know, the gold business was really taking off in Southern Africa then. He wanted to sponsor an expedition to go up to the Mashona land, which today we would call Zimbabwe. And the, the way that the, the Rothschilds had organized several expeditions like this, and, and the way it worked was that they helped, the le- they identified a leader who was well known in the moneyed classes, and they helped him or write a prospectus, if you like, and recruit friends and family and other investors to their expedition. And then they also supplied mining expertise and logistical expertise that made it all happen. And Lord Randolph, you know, that, that was a socially acceptable way for a duke's son <laughs> to try and replenish the family coffers. And so he agreed to do that. Um, and he recruited the, you know, enough money from friends and family to like in a modern terms, would they be kind of like angel investors in a venture fund? Yeah, yeah. No, I think you could put it that way. Absolutely. Um, he, he recruited, I think it was about 15 or so. And um, he, his own stake was partly bankrolled by the Rothschild family. And it was also partly bankrolled by an assignment he got from a newspaper whose owners were friends of his, you know, part of the magic three or 400 families. Um, the Borthwick family owned a newspaper called The Morning Post, and they commissioned him to write a series of articles about the expedition's progress. And so off they went down to Southern Africa, and um, I mean, the accounts of its progress, <laughs> it, it had a fantastic train in its wake of creature comforts. So it, it 
you know, it took quite a time to get from Cape Town up to what we would now call Zimbabwe. And I think they were away nine months altogether. And they, in their designated area of Zimbabwe, they never found, the, they, they had one find which looked initially promising. So they had to go and find new areas to mine for gold? That's right, yes. I'm not even sure that it was licensed. I can't, I, I don't know exactly how it worked. But I mean, you know, they were going into an area that was loosely under British control, effectively under British control. Lord Randolph and the Rothschilds knew people like Cecil Rhodes who were in political, insofar as there was a sort of political power, it was exercised by Britons anyway. The natives, i.e. the Africans, didn't matter much in this equation. They went up north through areas that were already producing, like um, the, the, the Kimberley the Kimberley region, which was producing diamonds, and they went through the Witswatersrand, which was producing gold. Uh, they, they were trying to find gold further north, up in Zimbabwe. But they never found it. They never found it, at least in any sort of um, quantity that was commercial. And, and in fact, all the investors, all his family and friends, lost all their money from the expedition. However, um, on, on the way home, he got a tip-off from one of the Rothschild's friends, a man called Alfred Bate, who went on to be, become famously rich from the gold mining business. He got a tip-off that the next big thing was actually going to be much deeper mines and that in, in the Witzwasserstrand area. In the um, what area? Well, it's called the Witzwasserstrand. Um, oh, it's a Dutch name. <laughs> it, it's a name of an area and it's a place name, yeah. And he sent off one of his mining engineers, a Rothschild mining engineer, to have a look. He didn't actually go himself, but, but just to have a look and talk to the people. And the guy came back and said, you know, I think this is quite promising. This may be the way the, the gold business goes. We're down to greater mining debts. And Lord Randolph got the chance from Alfred Bay, offered him the chance to take up some shares, which the Rothschilds bankrolled, and it at the sort of pre-IPO price, um, you know, a, a ground, very much a ground-level price. And the mine went on to be spectacularly successful. And the, when they floated it, I mean, eventually, just after Lord Randolph's death, the shares would have risen to over 100 times what he paid for them. So this actually paid, this paid for the rest of his life, which was, he only had another three years to live, as it happens. But, and it also meant that when the shares were sold by his executors, they were able to hand over what was really pretty handy sum of money to the will trust he set up for the benefit of his wife and um, family. So that was the equivalent of sort of uh, six, seven million dollars today. Um, Winston Churchill wrote, and this is, a, I'm afraid, a bit of an illustration of how little he understood money, I guess. He wrote that his father died at a time when his assets equaled his liabilities, but, but he couldn't have been more wrong. He's, uh, th this was something I found in the Rothschild archives, that actually his father had left quite a considerable sum of money. Yeah, which, according to your book, he's left almost 54,000 pounds, which is... That's worth about, in US dollars, I mean, that, that's worth about, well, nowadays that would be... Hold on. Six million pounds, so say seven or eight million dollars. Yeah, yeah. it's worth six million pounds. <laughs> yeah. 
Sadly, Churchill's dad didn't leave us any pounds or titles to mines. Which makes sense since we're dragging his son, but if you want to help us continue our mission, you can do it for five bucks a month, or 4.01 pounds sterling for you comrades across the pond. Please go to historically.substack.com and sign up for our newsletter and listen to all of our podcasts. Thank you. So Winston also seemed to have a really strange relationship with his father. Winston went to school and he didn't like his school, so he switched schools. And then by the time exam time came, his father asked him to join the army. Can you talk about that? Yes, he was sent packing after boarding school aged eight. And his parents didn't even have a look at the school first. They just, you know, they knew it as a fashionable school for their sort of people. And it, but it turned out to be a brutal regime. And, and that first school he was sent to from the age of eight to nine, I mean, he, he, it wasn't just that he didn't like it. It was that he had everything beaten out of him. Yikes. Um, and, you know, his doctor and his nanny noticed this. And they confronted the parents, really, and said, you've got to, you've got to switch him. And so they switched him down to a much gentler place on the south coast where the doctor's own son went. And he was there from the age of about nine to 13, which is when the switch from what was called a preparatory school to the so-called public school, although it's actually, you know, privately run and owned, uh, when that happens at the age of 13. And that's when he went, not to Eton where his father had been, but to Harrow. Um, I think, I think, because Harrow was up on a hill a bit further outside London and Eton was down by the river. And, you know, he had a fairly delicate constitution, did um, Winston, and he'd had bad pneumonia the year before, so they thought it would be better for him to go to Harrow. And um, he, he, was, he, he had a pretty undistinguished academic record at his first school and at his second school and, uh, and, and also at Harrow. He was always in the bottom set, the bottom um, class for his cohort. Um, I, you know, he he didn't really apply himself to his mass. He was uh, to to his work. He was unpunctual. He was always getting into trouble. I, I was interested. I was giving a talk last year to a group of retired, rather eminent medical people, and they'd asked me to talk about his health and at various stages of his life. And at the end of it, a a woman professor of pediatrics got up and said, what you've described in the early years is a classic case of what today we would call ADHD. Do you know what I mean by ADHD? Uh, What attention deficit? Yeah, I I have it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it it wasn't diagnosed at the time he was at school. It wasn't wasn't recognized as a condition. But They probably would beat him for... Things that they can't control, like interruptions and yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, but but in those days, it was regarded as a. I mean, his father was exasperated by it. You know, he 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 said Winston so slovenly, so unpunctual. He's always getting into trouble. Um, he just doesn't apply himself. He's lazy. You know, he was very disappointed in his son, basically, and he thought that he wasn't bright enough to go to university. Now that was, you know, that was quite a big statement at the time because it, it ruled out, um, it ruled out certain professions like the law. And the law was a big sort of avenue for sons of the aristocracy. If you weren't the eldest who inherited the land, you know, if you were number two, 
you, either, you, you, you needed really to go into politics or the law or something like that, but you couldn't go into business. Um, but, you know, if you weren't bright enough to go to university, then the army was the next best thing. And according to Winston Churchill's own account in, in his autobiographical volume, My Early Life, his father came into the nursery at their London home, one of his rear visits to the nursery, and was quite impressed by the fact that Winston had drawn up his lot of toy soldiers. You know, he had something like 1,500 toy soldiers, I think. And he'd drawn them up in quite neatly and impressively and, and was conducting a campaign against his younger brother, which he was clearly going to win. And, and his father said, well, do you, you know, what about going into the army? And um, according to Winston Churchill, you know, he, he immediately said, yes, good. Um, and he accepted that. But that meant that while he was still at school, he was sort of transferred into the army class at Harrow, which, which um, prepared would-be officers for the special exam they had to take to get into the, uh, it was called the Royal Military College at Sandhurst, which was the officer cadets. Uh, and, but despite this special training, he failed the first time. And, and, and then, uh, you know, to his father's complete frustration, he, he failed a second time. I mean, his father was pretty ill by now and, you know, pretty quick to get angry and not very sympathetic, and, and, and wrote his son some horrible letters, I have to say. Um, and he had threatened to send him into business, the ultimate sort of indignity, <laughs> if he failed a second time. But he came just about close enough to be allowed a third chance, but he had to transfer to a special school that prepared them just for that exam. And, and, and you know, he got in third time. But even then, I mean, he was pretty pleased at getting in, uh, but he didn't get in high enough to get into the infantry, which was cheaper than the, than, than, it was cheaper in the sense that your parents had to produce less of an extra allowance because the, the, the alternative of the cavalry were, you know, the expenses of being an officer in the cavalry were enormous because you had to have this string of horses, different horses for polo in the summer and hunting in the winter. And um, anyway, Winston, I think he was quite pleased. He only got into the cavalry, but his father was furious. So, that, that, you know, there were more <laughs> more disappointments. For me, I was very surprised that they required like about 500 pounds a year to maintain their lifestyle with the polo and the sports and all that. Yeah. Yes, well, it's very different from today. I mean, you know, in the early years of the armed forces, I don't know whether you ever had the same system in the early days in the States, but here people had to buy their own commissions. You know, you for a long time, you bought your commission. <laughs> and so it was, it was assumed that you came from a rather moneyed background if you were going to be an officer. And I guess this was a sort of vestige of that. You no longer had to buy your commissions, but you still had to fork out quite a bit of extra over and above the pay. I mean, the pay for a young officer when Winston Churchill was commissioned was £120 a year. And as you say, you, he needed about, well, in, in the end, his mother, following his father's death, gave him an allowance of £500 a year on top of that. 
Actually, it's kind of funny. Um, I was born in Bangalore, so uh, he, he uh-huh. apparently transferred to Bangalore, but he didn't like it very much. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. He, he, um, I don't know where he would have preferred. I think he preferred, he preferred being in Bangalore than Hyderabad or... Uh, Bangalore was at least nice and cool, but he said it was in the middle of nowhere and there was no sea or beaches yeah. for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but then, I, I went to Bangalore about uh, 10 or 15 years ago, and uh, I, I loved it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it doesn't have a sea, but it's cooler. Um, yeah. But what, I, what surprises me is the relationship he maintained with his mother when he was in India, and he kept on mm. writing to her. Mm. So when he was an officer, he got to accompany combatants in the first Anglo-Afghan uprising in 1897. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> yes. In those days, they call it the northwest frontier of India. I mean, it's where we, where, where we, what we call Afghanistan now, but it, it was still part of India. And there were these remote tribes that sometimes rose up against the British garrisons and gave them trouble. And they would dispatch a uh, field force, as they called it, to go and quell the problem um so yeah when he became a a subaltern in the cavalry and he went out to they were posted out to india uh, towards the end of 1896 and he found the he found the army life in india quite frustrating uh because you know the training finished at 11 a.m in the morning because it got so hot and the polo didn't start till about 4 30 in the afternoon when it gets cooler again, and so there was this great gap in the middle of the day, which, by the way, he used to read, 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 and educate himself. So it turned out to be an enormously significant posting. That's when he really catches up on his education. But he was sort of impatient for more action, and when he'd been on leave back in England briefly in... um, or maybe it was before he was sent out to India, but at some point in 1896, he had met one of his mother's army friends. She had lots of friends in the army, particularly those who were very lean and had moustaches. And she probably slept with many of them. And and we're on pretty safe ground in saying she had slept with this one, the uh, magnificently named Sir Bindon Blood. (laughs) And... um, Winston had met him as well as a young, you know, very young junior army officer. And he has said, Sir Bindon, if you ever get get given command of one of these field forces, would you please take me onto your staff so that I can come up and get some action? And Sir Bindon had promised to do so. So in in the summer of 1897, uh, Winston Churchill was certainly on leave in England. He was at the races down south of London, a place called Goodwood, up on the South Downs. And when he heard of this new uprising in the northwest frontier region and the fact that Sir Bindon Blood had been put in charge of the field force that was to go and um, deal with it. And he set off immediately. I mean, he just sort of dropped everything and set off back to India. He had... You know, he told his mother to sort everything out with Sir Bindon and write letters, and he wrote letters, and everybody was fired into action. He forgot to take the dog he was supposed to take with him. And they, but 
he was quite distressed not to get any news of any of the stops along the way. And even when he got to India, there was no news. And then eventually the news came that, that from Sabindan that he didn't have a vacancy on his staff, but if he could get, if he could get posted there as a correspondent for, for a newspaper, then uh, if, the, if a vacancy occurred, he would make sure that, that Sabindan would make sure that he would take him onto his staff. And, well, Winston, through his mother, I mean, again, it's his mother who fixes it. She fixes most things at this stage in his life. She fixed for him to become, to, to be able to write a correspondent, uh, a, a column as a war correspondent for the Daily Telegraph, which was, you know, a, a, a pretty well-known London newspaper. And, and he also uh, got, got, a, he got um, appointed by one of the Indian newspapers called The Pioneer. And so he set off up to this remote region. It took him four days from Bangalore to get there by train. And when he got there, he, he was really in the thick of the fighting. I mean, and his letters to his mother, well, both the columns he wrote, the Daily Telegraph, uh, but, but particularly some of the private letters he wrote to his mother, show that he, was, he had some pretty terrifying experiences. You know, he was right in the thick of it, and it was sort of hand-to-hand combat for some of the time. <coughs> And um, the, th- the thing was that he found that, you know, really to his surprise, I think, he found he was quite fearless and that it all, it was as though it happened in a dream. Everything was quite mechanical, he said. And he'd had the same feeling a couple of years earlier in Cuba where he'd gone to, during the winter break, to sort of witness some, the Spanish fighting the local insurgents. And, and by the way, he wrote a column while he was there. And this is really where he decided that he was, uh, to his surprise, quite fearless and enjoyed the sense of adventure that fighting brought. And that that uh, comes through very, very graphically in, in his letters to his mother, who was his only real confidant at the time. And... um. So, but the, for me, what was interesting is that he took what all the notes from his time in Afghanistan, and he used it to publish his first book. Yes, the story of the Malakan Field Force. Mm-hmm. And the, what, what happened was that he was pretty fed up that his mother had only arranged uh, a fee of five pounds per article. So I suppose you'd call that about $1,000 an article. For Which his. is way better than what most of us get nowadays. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but anyway, he thought she should have got at least twice the price. And, and he was very, you know, he's very critical of her in his letters to her. And she, by way of sort of trying to mollify him, really, she said, well, why don't you think of collecting the articles into a book? And actually, he'd had the same idea, more or less at the same time. Their letters about this cross each other. And so he, he agreed that was a good idea. He said, as long as you can find a publisher, that's your job. So she found him a publisher. You know, she knew one of the big politicians who had published a book. She asked him how he'd done it. He said, Here, here's a, he was basically the world's first literary agent, A.P. Watt. And he had to race against the correspondent of the Times to see who could come out first. And he won that race, but only uh, at the expense of lots of uh, typos, which he was mortified by. (laughs) But despite those, you know, the book got pretty good reviews. I mean, not 
in, it wasn't really the days when they had that many printed reviews, but it was well thought of amongst this still small circle up at the top um, who talked about these things. And it meant that when there was another campaign the following year in the Sudan, and then when it came to the Boer War, you know, he was easily able to get assignments as a war correspondent. With the Boer War, although he was kind of captured and he kind of escaped, like if what surprises me is like he's like wanted to use that. Like he, you, you mentioned how the publicity surrounding his capture like made him famous and it got him another book. Like even mm. Winston said, if I had not been caught, I could not have escaped. And my imprisonment and escape provided me with enough materials for lectures and a book, which brought me enough money to get into the parliament in the 1900s. Yes. <laughs> That's kind of a yes. very, so that's, it, it, it reminds me of, I guess, the first social media celebrity like that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. And he, you know, he's under the age of 25 when all this happens. Um, I mean, I think you know, he was, he already had some notoriety or some recognition as a war correspondent before the Boer War started because he he had become friends with one of the new newspaper proprietors called Alfred Harmsworth, who'd started up this newspaper called the Daily Mail, which is still a mass newspaper here today. Oh, yes, unfortunately. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And um, the Daily Telegraph, which is still a mass newspaper here today, had, had uh, and the, well, the Morning Post fold, has folded now into the Daily Telegraph. But anyway, he, he had these two big newspapers wanting his services for the Boer War. You know, here was this guy, he had a track record, he, he wrote good copy, he'd been in the army, he'd just come out of the army officially, um, and they both bid for his services and they bid against each other. And he got this record fee to go down and report on the Boer War. It was £250 a month from shore to shore. So as soon as he embarked in That's the UK... That's equivalent to £32,000 today, a month. <laughs> £32,000 a month, yeah. I mean yeah. that's that's huge, isn't it? Yeah. And 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 expenses on top of that. So you know you can see that they that they were already pushing his reports. They knew he would provide them good copy before he was captured. And then the sort of icing on the cake: he was captured and escaped. And that you know he, he, his escape came. The news of it came through to London on Christmas Day. So it was um, it was a big big story. And not only in Britain, by the way, but also in America. And so, as you say, he was able to parlay that into books and he got offers of tours. Uh, he got uh, lecture tours in, in the UK and in America. He made much more money in the UK because the, uh, it was a very sort of nationalistic fervor for the war. But in America, the Boers had a, had a, a better hearing and his tour in America wasn't quite so successful, but still it was useful. And, and he had, by the time he was 25, by the time he was elected and in the following year, 1900, Parliament, as a 25-year-old MP, or he had saved capital of um, today's equivalent of a million pounds. And that's the surprising thing is that he's always complaining about how he didn't have money despite having lots of money. Well, um, he had money at that point when he was elected. But, you know, politics as an MP weren't paid. And basically over the next 10 years, he lost it all. Well, I say he lost it all. He spent it all or, or lost it all. 
So by the time the First World War comes round, or even just a bit before it, he is in debt. And, um, and really, he stays like that for, well, until the end, until the, the middle, actually, um, of the Second World War. So he spends about 30 plus years in mounting debt. That even surprised me is in your book, when he became the home secretary, like his mother helped him with that too. Um, so she's always the unseen uh, influence behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, she certainly was in the early days of his political career. I don't, I don't think she, she had any hand in securing him that appointment as home secretary. But you're absolutely right. In the early years, Getting noticed as a as a would be candidate, she fixed him up with you know, meetings with the central office of the Conservative Party. She arranged his first couple of political speeches because he was out in India and he was going to be back on leave, and he needed her to arrange them, and she did. Um, and she would throughout his career, she did fix things for him. She found a political secretary for him, or she sorted out the furnishings of his apartment, or she put in a good word for his books with the Prince of Wales, or, you know, there are untold number of little things that she did for him. And um, then the, when in the First World War, when, when he had been lost office at the Admiralty because of the whole sort of fallout from the Dardanelles campaign, and he went off to fight in the trenches she is still trying, she's writing to him, telling him what she's doing to try to help redeem his political reputation back home. It's very touching. The problem is that most of her contacts are then are, are, are sort of part of the B team. But she, nonetheless, she's still throwing dinner parties and she's still trying to rescue his reputation. One question I do have. So he becomes the Admiralty of Navy in about 1913. And it seems like Darcy, who got the Anglo-Persian oil concession around that time, is having trouble. So Winston Churchill is also advocating in Parliament for the British Navy from switching over to coal to oil. Is there any corruption in this sense, or is this kind of being in the right time at the right place? No, I don't. I, I mean, at that time, in the lead up to the First World War, I, the, the, there's no, no no trace of any corruption at all. I mean, it was a big strategic decision he took, one of many actually, and and he is credited with having readied the British fleet for the First World War. You know, it was a quite a sclerotic service. It was the UK's main strategic force. We had never had much of an army because we we. Our, our whole strategic doctrine was that we should command the seas around the island and be powerful enough to blockade any continental power like Germany that tried to, to dominate us or threatened to invade. But the Navy had become quite sclerotic. It, it, it was a very Tory institution. It had masses of elderly admirals, and they were generally rather resistant to change. And he was put in there, I think he was 30, he, he was appointed in 1912, so he was about 37 or 38. And he was put in there deliberately by Asquith to shake it up. And Asquith, the prime minister at the time, knew that he would make lots of enemies, but he thought he wouldn't mind making enemies, and, and he was dead right. And one of the things that he did was 
build new ships, but he also knew that if they were still fueled by coal, it narrowed their options for how long they could remain at sea, where they could go, because there had to be enough coal, there had to be coaling stations, and that if they converted to oil, they would have much more strategic flexibility. And securing that oil was what was what was behind that uh, deal that uh, you mentioned, having security of supply. So there was no there was no hint of corruption at, about it at all. What I think um, this whole business of the oil does come back about ten years later, when he was out of power in 1923, and. The oil company, the, there was an oil company that wanted to buy BP, or maybe it was the other way around. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think, I think it was Burma oil company wanted to buy. I can't quite remember which way around it was. No, no, I, I think the Burma oil company merged with Anglo-Persian Petroleum. Right. I'm sure you're right. Well, anyway, they, they, one of the parties to the would-be merger or a further merger wanted to. Uh, knowing that there would be some political controversy, hired Winston Churchill as a consultant. I mean, as a sort of early days lobbyist, if you like, mm -hmm. to try to help massage the deal through. And they did, in fact, pay him. Uh, well, that was one of the things I discovered. I mean, his official biography says that he was never in the end paid. Well, they did pay him. They just paid his. They paid the fee to the stockbroker, I discovered. Oh. Um, and, and I think there was a sort of bit of a whiff about it because Winston Churchill, when he went to see the Prime Minister about this and see if the Prime Minister had any objection to him acting, uh, he went in by the back door. And in those days, you didn't often go in by the back door unless you <laughs> didn't want to be seen. And so there was the feeling that he, you know, he, he, he was a little bit concerned for his future political reputation that this shouldn't come out. So that, that's the, the bit that you may be thinking of in relation to the oil. I'd love to have you back because we've only covered half his life. But is there any vestiges of that same kind of hereditary aristocracy in British political life that you see today? Or has things changed a lot? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Well, um, our last two prime ministers have been educated at Eton. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you, you know about Eton, I guess. Yes. There's still, a, you know, there is still a lot of privilege in the UK today. Seven percent of children go through a private schooling system, but it's not really aristocratic privilege. The last aristocrat to be prime minister of this country was the Earl of Hume in 1963 to four. So he only lasted a year. He had to come out of the House of Lords and renounce his peerage and come into the House of Commons for the purpose. But, you know, there are still dukes with very large uh, land holdings. The, there are still 90 members of the House of Lords who are hereditary and are elected by their hereditary sort of grouping in the House of Lords is, elects its own 90 representatives. Yeah, I mean, Britain is, is still got quite a long way to go before it can call itself um, a thorough a democracy as, say, Scandinavian countries. Uh, I hesitate to comment on America because, oh. of course, you know, you have your own dynasties. Yes. Oh, I mean, we have, uh, it's surprising. If you look at the congressmen, 
there's at least like 75 congressmen whose dads were congressmen and who are now mm. inherited their seats. So, yeah, we have yeah. the same problem, but it's not as evident because there's no titles that come with it. <laughs> yes. Yes. And one last question. What are you working on next? Are you working on any other books or any other projects? Um, yes. Yes. No, I'm, I'm actually working on a history of the royal family and its money. Because, you know, I mean, this is quite surprising, but until 1801, the sovereign in this country was not allowed to have any private property. And when Queen Victoria came to the throne in 1837, she had no money at all privately. But now the Windsors have... a you know, a little very considerable private fortune. And it's extremely difficult to tell where the line is between their private fortune and the public wealth. So what caused that change? Uh, well, you'll have to read my book when it eventually comes out. <laughs> but okay. some, it was the thing is, it's all done with Parliament's approval, basically. I mean, it's quite surprising. But, uh, you know, Parliament's been in charge throughout this. They've allowed them to to save money privately from the civil list, which is the amount that we used to hand to the royal family each year. If they made savings and didn't spend it all, they were allowed to transfer to that to their private purse. And then having paid tax throughout the 19th century, they basically gradually in the 20th century stopped paying tax with the agreement of the government, not always the agreement of parliament because parliament wasn't always told. And then they have kept these two sources of income, one from the Duchy of Lancaster and one from the Duchy of Cornwall. The Duchy of Lancaster goes to the Queen, the Duchy of Cornwall goes to the Prince of Wales. And these are by now very large, you know, they're each bringing in sort of something like 20 million pounds a year. Yikes. Quite apart from their, from from the public amount that is paid by way of the sovereign grant. So, you know, it's an, it's an interesting story, which I, and I don't think the history of it is sufficiently uh, well known. Well, when you when do you expect to publish it? Just curious. Oh, uh, I think I'm a good two or three years away. You know, I do a lot of research before I write. Okay, um, well, I was going to invite you back, but I'd like to have you back before you publish that. So please come, of course, when you publish it, but also come sometime in between too, because it was a right, wonderful chatting you. with you. That's, that's kind of you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectex. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.